Well, uh, it's really, I'm really very happy to be here with you. And, and Rick, thank you again for the invitation. Um, the, the paper I'm going to present to you, I, I think some of you have seen a, a copy of it in advance. And, but either way, I, I want, before giving the, the gist of it, I will tell you where it came from. Because I wasn't expecting to write this kind of paper. But I've been doing some work on Trinitarian theology, especially on the issue of the procession of the Holy Spirit, where I want to argue that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father to the Son and back to the Father within the Trinity. And that, in fact, you can find this in kind of hidden ways in people like Gregory of Nazianzus and others. Um, and in the course of this work, a peer reviewer challenged me on something. And he challenged me that, okay, if I say this, what do you do about Trinitarian fallacies that go like this? The Father is God. God is the Son. Therefore, the Father is the Son. So the big occupation of medieval Trinitarian theologians is, okay, we all know this is wrong, but why is it wrong? And so I was challenged on this. I'd never really been very interested in those questions before, um, but I was challenged I, I, and I wanted to look into it. And meanwhile, I had been reading a lot of Frege and Husserl because I was doing something else on religious language and how language works. And because I had been reading reading Frege, one of the things that he is, one of his big themes of, of his writings is that if you put a concept word in the place of grammatical subject, you're going to have all kinds of problems making a concept into a thing. So I had that in mind. And, um, and, and so I'll say that, that I, I see Frege as really, really good at spotting problems, not so much at finding solutions to them, as even he himself kind of felt like his project had ended in failure. Um, and somebody like Husserl or Wittgenstein are really good at showing solutions to the problems he names. But for me, in this context, it was just that his naming of the problem was on my mind. And then I look at that fallacy. The Father is God. God is the Son. And I said, when did people start to say God is the Son? Because if you take that line away, the fallacy evaporates. You don't have a problem at all. And so I started to try to trace things back and I thought it was not in patristic authors. It's by the, by the 1300s, it's very common. But so when did it start? And I start to kind of move it backwards, further and further. And eventually, using a word search, I found out it was an Anselm, at least according to databases. He's the first person. So that's the whole context. It was kind of like a little bit of a, and what this ended up leading me to a lot of, of, of conclusions that this move that Anselm makes is a really bad move that causes a lot of confusion and then sets up uh, problems for later medieval theologians. So that's, that's the background. And with that in mind, I'll, I will get started. During the academic year 1320 to 21, a famous theological disputation took place at the University of Paris. One of the points of dispute was the beatific vision. Against Pierre Roger, the future Pope Clement VI, Francis de Meron argued that by God's absolute power, God could enable someone to see the divine essence without seeing any of the divine persons. The idea was not original to him. 
He was defending the thesis of his teacher, John Duns Scotus. Today, this disputation is puzzling, especially when we take into account that no one thought that God would ever do such a thing. Theologians today do not entertain such questions. They do not feel any need. Today, the idea that someone could see the divine essence without seeing any of the divine persons, whatever we take see to mean in this context, seems obviously problematic. It comes dangerously close to treating the divine essence like a fourth entity in God, as though God was not a trinity, but a quaternity. So why would Scotus have ever proposed such a thesis? Scotus and every other medieval theologian rejected any conception of the divine essence that would make God into a quaternity. Could he not see how his thesis seems to do just that? And why was his thesis taken so seriously, to the point that prominent public figures were debating his thesis at the University of Paris, the most distinguished form of the age? This paper will argue that while Scotus's thesis is indeed problematic, it represents a responsible attempt to grapple with confused thinking about the divine essence. By the time of Scotus, I want to argue, Confused thinking about the divine essence had become widespread and near universal in Western Trinitarian theology, and this confused thinking lies at the root of many medieval controversies. This particular controversy about the beatific vision has been chosen to introduce the argument of this paper, not because it's the most important, but because few medieval controversies about the Trinity are as concrete and tangible, or so suggestive of something having gone wrong. What happened? What went wrong? According to the thesis of this paper, new ways of speaking about God slipped into Latin theology in the late 11th century. These new ways of speaking about God were fully capable of an orthodox interpretation, but they were ambiguous, and their amb ambiguity fostered confusion. The more they were repeated and propagated, the more they reconfigured the grammar of Trinitarian doctrine. Meanwhile, there was little awareness of what was happening. Despite some initial resistance, most notably by Gilbert of Poitiers, the momentum behind this reconfiguration proved unstoppable, and the new Trinitarian grammar became normative. In the course of trying to make it work, medieval theologians became locked in false controversies, all of them impossibly convoluted, from which Western Trinitarian theology has not yet emerged. The critical shift, which seems to have passed unnoticed so far by historians of doctrine, can be summarized simply and succinctly. In the first millennium, Christians said, the Father is God and the Son is God, but they did not say, God is the Father or God is the Son. They also said, the Son is consubstantial with the Father or the Son is of one substance with the Father, but they did not say, the Son is the divine substance. But then in the 11th century, something shifted. Anselm of Canterbury began to say things like, God is the Father, and God is the Son. At one point, for example, he declares, For we believe and say that God is the Father, and God is the Son, and conversely, that the Father is God, and the Son is God. Anselm also began to make claims like each and every person is perfectly the supreme essence. Other theologians followed his example. 
Eventually, the Fourth Lateran Council canonized the new Trinitarian grammar in 1215, thus making it normative for all subsequent Western theology. Although Lateran IV made some important adjustments and qualifications, which excluded heterodox interpretations, these adjustments and qualifications were not enough to counterbalance the intrinsic propensity of the new grammar to mislead. As a result, deeply confused ways of speaking about God became embedded in the church's own confession of faith. The problem with these new ways of speaking about God was that their grammatical structure encouraged misleading inferences. In the first place, they encouraged theologians to think of the divine essence as a fourth entity distinct from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Medieval theologians recognized this tendency, fought against it, and utterly rejected it. But only after they had first started seeing it in each other's theology, proving implicitly that the idea had somehow become intellectually attractive. Although no one endorses it, there are a lot of people accusing others of holding to it. (laughs) In addition, these new ways of speaking about God led medieval theologians to become preoccupied with logical problems especially the problem of how each divine person could be identical with the divine essence and yet different from each other. Most medieval theologians, but as we will see, not all, Gilbert of Poitiers emerges as a really important historical witness in all this. Most medieval theologians seem unaware that earlier creeds and confessions had never posited identity between persons and essence, or that Basil of Caesarea had warned That saying that persons in essence are the same leads to the area of Sibelius, that therefore these logical problems were not intrinsic to Christian revelation, but only to certain problematic conceptions of the relationship between person and essence. In this way, according to the story I want to tell, by the early 14th century, confused thinking about the divine essence had become widespread and near universal. This confused thinking explains why, even though all medieval theologians agreed that the divine essence must not be considered a fourth entity in God, still some of them argued that it was possible to see the divine essence without seeing any of the divine persons, and why those who disagreed had a hard time persuading them that they were wrong. Now, the radicality of this thesis may provoke immediate skepticism. It's one thing to take issue with the Trinitarian theology of one figure or another. It's another thing to claim that the entire Western tradition has been permeated with confused thinking. This article's thesis, however, is not as radical as it might seem. First, major theologians, both Eastern and Western, have long alleged that Western theology assigns a metaphysical status to the divine essence that it does not deserve. Their allegations have provoked strong counterclaims, but the allegations are now well-established features of the theological landscape, and right or wrong, they claim considerable support. Second, this article's thesis finds support in Theodore de Reignon's contention that, compared to patristic theology, scholastic theology emphasizes divine unity over the distinction of persons. De Reignon's historiography has been widely criticized, but it remains influential and many continue to endorse it, at least to some degree. Third, this article's thesis does not call into question the orthodoxy of medieval theology, its rootedness in scripture, 
or its fidelity to the patristic consensus. To the contrary, it implies that even when handicapped by conceptual confusion, as a body, medieval theologians avoid any substantial deviation from scripture or Nicene orthodoxy. No matter their starting points, they demonstrate an impressive ability to find their way back to orthodox doctrine again and again. Finally, and most importantly, the evidence for the central historical claim of this article, that new ways of speaking about God become widespread after Anselm, and the number of Trinitarian controversies followed in their wake, is compelling and, I think, conclusive. So, uh, with that said, what I'm going to do now is just say a little bit about Frege and some points that he makes that, uh, that are, uh, I think, very illuminating and very intuitively plausible. I see Frege as, I, I don't know his philosophy exhaustively, but he makes certain very discrete points that have been widely accepted, and that when you hear them, I think, you find them to be strikingly plausible at first glance. What to do with them is another question. And, um, but here, here are some of the, the observations he makes. First, as a kind of background to understanding what he wants to say, um, it's important to understand that Frege makes the distinction between objects and concepts. Roughly speaking, objects are things and concepts are properties of things. The distinction is a logical one. Frege's definition of concept, for example, has nothing to do with the psychology of human cognition. It's a category for describing how language and thought relate to the world. Examples of objects include cats, barns, and the Louvre. Examples of concepts include any property that can be predicated of an object. In Frege's terminology, objects fall under concepts. For example, the planet Venus falls under the concept of a planet. And uh, according to Frege, there is a radical distinction between an object and a concept. And you just, one cannot become the other. And they're just a feature of language and of logic that you have to respect. And if you, if you confuse things, if you treat a concept like an object, you're going to have all kinds of problems. Not, uh, one of uh, Frege's distinction, um, I think, is intuitively plausible, in part because it maps so closely with the grammatical distinction between subject and predicate, which is just hard to get around when you look at language. Not coincidentally, Frege's distinction has many similarities with the Aristotelian distinction between primary and secondary usia according to which an individual horse is an example of primary osea, while the species of horse and the genus animal are examples of secondary osea. Okay, with that distinction between objects and concepts in mind, uh, we can appreciate two of Frege's observations. First, Frege notes that in ordinary language, the verb to be can serve two very different functions. It can relate an object to a concept according to the schema A is B, like the barn is red. The barn is the object, is red is the concept. 
But the verb to be can also signify identity or equation or equality, according to the schema A equals B, as in the sentence, the morning star is the evening star. The schema A equals B indicates that two different presentations of an object each correspond to the same object. It does not relate an object to a concept. It relates two presentations of the same object to each other. It's an object-object relationship, not an object-concept relationship. So are you setting up then an if A equals B, then B equals C sequence? Um, yes, there's a way in which um, if you have, uh, if you use an equal sign, then you can move things around, you can flop them back and forth. So if you have A equals B, then B equals A. If the morning star is the evening star, then the evening star is the morning star. But if you grant that the barn is red, according to A is B, not equals B, then you can't flip it. You can't say, oh, if the barn is red, then red is the barn. It doesn't work. I mean, except in a kind of strange poetic way. But even then, the, the, pred the subject has to be the barn. You can't make the subject is red or red. It doesn't work. So that's one thing. And uh, one of the things I spent a lot of time on is trying to track down, did medieval logicians, were they aware of the way the verb to be could be used in these different ways? I mean, this is widely seen as one of Frege's great insights. But I wonder, did medieval logicians, did they have anything comparable? And so far, my conclusion is no, they didn't. They didn't have this uh, uh, thematized. Although they had other ways to get at problematic uh, statements. Uh, the other big observation, which I've already alluded to, is that when we place concept words in the role of grammatical subject, their meaning changes. The reason is that grammatical subjects can only designate objects. Consequently, when we place concept words in the role of grammatical subject, they cease to designate concepts. Technically, they can only designate objects. And to quote him, he says, by a kind of necessity of language, my expressions, taken literally, sometimes miss my thought. I mention an object when what I intend is a concept. He's kind of aware we speak this way, he speaks that way, but that it can set up a trap where you start to think of a concept as, as a thing rather than um, a, a concept or a property. Now, very interestingly, uh, Edmund Husserl, who I've grown to appreciate, was deeply influenced by reading Frege. He thought Frege was wrong in a lot of his conclusions, but he really seems to have learned a lot from Frege. And Husserl has a very similar claim that concept words, when they are put in the subject of a sentence, uh, change their meaning, and that you have to be careful about this, how their meaning changes. Um, so let's skip through some other things here. So what does this mean for Trinitarian theology? In Christian theology, the term God can be used to designate either a concept, namely the property of divinity, or an object. For example, when the Council of Chalcedon says that Jesus Christ is true God and true man, the term God designates a property. And it means Jesus is truly divine. 
And when the Council of Nicaea says God from God, each instance of the term God designates an object. The first instance designates the Son, and the second instance designates the Father. Um, but now, if you take the proposition, God is the Father, what does the term God mean here? It's not easy to say. On the one hand, it appears that the term God must designate an object because it's the role of grammatical subject. But, um, but that is a problem because if God designates an object and God is the Father, what object could that possibly be? Well, you could say, and many medieval logicians took this route, which is to say, well, God is the Father, God designates the Father. It just ultimately down, comes down to the Father is the Father. But the problem is that when you, when you hear alongside each other, God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Holy Spirit, on the one hand, you want to say, well, God must mean a subject, uh, an object in each of these propositions. And we're kind of drawn to think, well, they must designate the same object because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equal. Like, uh, you, you kind of, you're kind of intuitively drawn to say, well, they must designate the same object. So what are the candidates for what this could possibly be? And I think divine essence ends up being a natural proposal. And I think that's one of the things I think is going on, you know, to kind of the story of why uh, divine essence starts to take on an outsized role is because people are trying to puzzle over what is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, what does God stand for? And if you assume those phrases are orthodox, um, you're kind of stuck with them. So what are you going to do with them? And you can either do it individually, they individually just are trivial, the Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. Or you start to drift towards the idea that, well, I guess you can say the divine essence is um, the Father. The divine essence is the Son. The divine essence is the Holy Spirit. And then that's going to lead to all kinds of new puzzles to solve, which is, if you can say those things, how is it true that, it's, uh, that the Father is not the Son? Because you start... if. But that only follows if you are, uh, if you accept that as a starting place. Another way to, or that's one thing, one way to kind of look at why this could cause problems, just simply by putting the God in, um, in the role of grammatical subject. But then if you make it a reversible statement, if you say, like Anselm will, God is the Father, the Father is God. Now, the verb to be there must be an equal sign. It must be an equation because only using the verb as an equal sign allows you to reverse things. And, so, and the only kinds of things that you can have an equal sign to are presentations of objects. So now, is it's already kind of, you're already in danger zone if you start to say God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Holy Spirit. But if you in addition will say, God is the Father, and the Father is God. There is no um, uh, way out of thinking of of, um, of these as presentations of of objects, and and therefore all the more kind of starting to be pushed to think of divine essence as um, 
as an object. So I'm, I'm trying to skip over a lot of, of the technical details, but it gives you a sense of why, from a Fragian point of view, you could expect trouble if you start to say things like, God is the Father, God is the Son. So now, historically, I'm just going to skip over it and say that I, I kind of went through exhaustedly uh, things in, um, in the first millennium to see, can you find anybody saying things like, God is the Father, God is the Son? And there are kind of like some kind of close cases here and there, and maybe there's some, a few phases in Augustine where he does this, but it's be, you know, really debatable. Um, but it's not mainstream. It's certainly not mainstream in extant writings, uh, and it is, um, uh, it's, just, it's just not present. You also don't find uh, just uh, things like the Son is the divine essence, or the Father is the divine essence. You will have, if you ever see like one of the divine persons related to substance, or usia, or essentia, there's going to be some qualification. It might be a proposition. The sun is of the same substance, or the sun, the sun is of the divine substance, but there, there's no equality. One of, I'll say one of the things I was excited to come across is that um, one unexpected source that confirms that this seems not to have been the way Christians talk comes from a medieval Muslim commentary on the Quran. Because the Quran at one point, in a couple places, says, there are those who say, God is Christ. And, um, which is, of course, very similar to God is the Son, and God is the Holy Spirit. And one of the medieval Muslim commentaries says, well, how, you know, we, we believe the Quran is inspired, but Christians don't speak this way. So, how is the Quran inspired? How is this true? And then he gives an elaborate explanation of how well, Christians don't speak this way, but it's still true. And that's why the Quran is right. But so it's, it's kind of an interesting external witness that Christians weren't speaking this way. Um, and then there's uh, another uh, comment is that there's something Rahner argues for to recover a way of speaking about divine persons as mode of subsistence. And I've now come to be really persuaded that's a very useful uh, term and that a lot of the motivation seems to have been among the Greek fathers who developed it uh, to avoid uh, an overly strict identification between person and essence. Okay, so I'm just skimming over a lot because I, you know, I try to show, you can't prove a negative, but I try to show that it's that it's, it's really hard to find something like that in the first millennium. Okay, so now I'm just shifting to Anselm, and there's, there's a, uh, a lot of historical circumstances that, that not only is the, the first extant person I've been able to find who speaks this way, but you can see like he had reason, like it was a perfect storm. In the late 11th century, a dispute about Trinitarian doctrine broke out in northern France. Rosslyn had asserted that each individual divine person must be considered a distinct thing, res, and he had claimed that Anselm, then abbot of Beck, agreed with him. Anselm responded vigorously because his orthodoxy was under attack, 
and Rosslyn was condemned at the Council of Soissons around 1090. What exactly Rosslyn taught is not clear. Little of his writings survive, and what we know about his teaching comes mainly from Anselm, who knew Rosslyn's view on this matter only secondhand, although Rosslyn and Anselm knew each other personally otherwise. Rosslyn's study of grammar, and Priscian in particular, had led him to conclude that the names of the divine persons, being nouns, must refer to three different things. Rosslyn may have seen support for his position in Anselm's monologian. If so, that would not have been unreasonable. Lanfranc, Anselm's friend and former abbot, seems to have criticized Anselm's monologian precisely because Anselm had spoken favorably of the Greek tradition of referring to the divine persons as substances. And in response to Lanfranc's criticism, Anselm did not recant, but instead wrote a preface citing Augustine in support of his claims. Um, anyway, Anselm first learned about Rosslyn's teaching from John, a former monk of Beck. John had written to Anselm to tell him what Rosslyn was saying and to ask for his opinion about Rosslyn's teaching. Beyond John's evident theological interest, John may also have been motivated by political concerns. At the time of his writing, John was back in Normandy because Pope Urban II had asked him to advise another protege of Anselm, who was, um, had been made a bishop, but the legitimacy of his appointment was contested. Heated controversy. And documentary evidence suggests that Rosslyn was on the other side of the dispute, arguing against Anselm's protege being the rightful bishop. And if that's the case, if Rosslyn was on the other side, John may have seen Rosslyn's teaching and his claim that Anselm agreed with him not merely as a theological challenge, but also as a political embarrassment, perhaps even a deliberate one, insofar as Rosslyn had claimed Anselm's support. In any event, whatever his motivations, Anselm took what Rosslyn was saying very seriously. He wrote a letter to Bishop Folco denouncing Rosslyn's teaching in the strongest possible terms, and he authorized him to read his letter at the Council of Soissons, which he knew would be discussing Rosslyn and ended up condemning him. To respond to Rosslyn's teaching in more detail, he wrote the treatise De Incarnatione Verbi. The fact that he revised and expanded this work multiple times and that his tone is strikingly polemical underscores the depth of his concern. In De Incarnatione Verbi, Anselm summarizes Rosslyn's argument as follows. If the three divine persons are only one thing, res, and there are not three things, each intrinsically distinct, like three angels or three souls, so that they are nonetheless completely one and the same in will and power, then the Father and the Holy Spirit became flesh with the Son. So that was his summary. According to Anselm, anyone who argues in this way either believes in three gods or does not know what he is saying. The problem, Anselm explains, is not in saying that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three things. In one sense, each person can indeed be called a thing. The problem is in saying that they are three things in the same way that three angels or three souls are three things. That would imply three gods. If we use the term res in Rosalind's sense, Anselm argues, then we must say that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one thing, not three things. 
And to establish his position, which is he needs to kind of try to come up very strongly to talk about uh, there being God being one thing and the three persons are one thing. And to kind of bolster this position, he appeals to a profession of Trinitarian faith, which he passes off as though it's a traditional confession. And he does so in a way that uh, just implies that this is just not controversial. And he says, and here's the key line, for we believe and say that God is the Father and God is the Son, and conversely, that the Father is God and the Son is God. And yet we neither believe nor say that there are many gods, but instead that God is one in number according to nature, even though Father and Son are not one, but two. Um, At first glance, this passage might seem like an innocuous gloss on the Athanasian Creed, which states, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods, but one God. Anselm, and presumably Rosalind, chanted the Athanasian Creed every day, and so it would would have been natural for Anselm to echo its phrasing at a critical moment in his argument. Yet Anselm was doing more than simply echoing the Athanasian Creed. He does not merely claim the Father is God. He also affirms God is the Father, which the Athanasian Creed does not. Moreover, he adds the verb to be, which the Athanasian Creed leaves implicit, and he uses the expression and conversely, which forces the reader to interpret each proposition in light of its converse. Okay, so I conclude my discussion of Anselm with that and um, give you a sense of like the historical back context in which he starts to speak this way and so that Anselm has a theological objective that he wants to achieve and this kind of new profession of faith really helps him kind of obliterate Rosalind's position um, because, and he's presented this is the faith you can't dispute that uh, he's kind of saying you've got to accept this as a starting point and um, and then it follows that Rosalind's position uh, does not work so that's Anselm now What's the case that Anselm ends up being influential on this point, and can, things can trace back to him? So it's generally recognized by uh, medieval historians that it's hard to find uh, clear citations of Anselm in the first 50, maybe even 100 years after him. Um, and that you can arguably show influence, but you have to go and look more closely at people repeating topics, repeating things he says, following his arguments, and that when you see kind of repetition, that points to actually they're reading Anselm, they're getting their ideas from Anselm, but they're not going to cite him and they're not going to be clear about where they're being influenced by him. So with that kind of kind of method in mind, and knowing that you're not really going to find much that's explicit, um, if you look at Peter Abelard, I think you can find very striking evidence that Peter Abelard is very influenced by Anselm on these points, and that he is taking from Anselm this way of speaking about God. God is the Son. So um, Abelard, had, even though he criticizes Anselm, had a high opinion of him, and he was greatly influenced by Anselm's Trinitarian theology. In one instance, Abelard criticizes Anselm by name 
for a Trinitarian image in Der Carnazioni Verbi, but Abelard's criticism proves that he was reading Anselm and taking him seriously, the very work where Anselm starts to speak this way. Anselm's influence on Abelard can also be discerned in the formulas that he repeats and the themes that he chooses. Most notably, at pivotal points in his argument, Abelard affirms that God is the Father and or God is the Son, thus making him only the second theologian after Anselm to speak this way in extant writings. That alone suggests influence. But then, shortly after affirming God is the Son, Abelard turns to the question of how the Son alone could become incarnate, which is the central question addressed by uh, Anselm's De Incarnatium Verbi, which further suggests influence. Later, Abelard discusses the meaning of the phrase, God from God, from the Nicene Creed, a phrase that Anselm had used repeatedly in De Processione, on the Holy Spirit, and in a, such an ambiguous and confusing way that the question of its meaning would naturally arise in anyone trying to make sense of Anselm's argument. And incidentally, Abelard's focusing on the question of God from God and what this little phrase means ends up being a big focus of his thought and ends up being very influential. And so I think it's very plausible that he got this question because other people weren't bothered by this question in the way Abelard was um, because of trying to, to puzzle through Anselm's De Processione on the Holy Spirit. Now, if any of you have read this work, it is a really hard work to go through. It's like he keeps, Anselm keeps talking about God from God uh, and um, God begetting God. Like God, the term God appears in a kind of poetic repetition, kind of spins you around. And one striking kind of medieval witness to how confusing reading Anselm's De Processione could be is Dun Scotus, who at one point he's talking about the procession, and he notes that, of the Holy Spirit, it's like, I know people comment on Anselm's De Processione on, um, on this point, but I'm going to skip over it because nobody agrees on how to interpret it. Um, so, cumulatively, I would argue the evidence points to direct influence of Anselm's Trinitarian writings on Abelard, most notably in his adoption of formulas like God is the Father and God is the Son. But Abelard does more than repeat Anselm. He takes Anselm as a starting point and then moves beyond him. In the process, Abelard draws many of the inferences that Fragian analysis of expressions like God is the Father and the Father is God predicts. Abelard wrestles with the logical problem of how, if the Father is God and God is the Son, it does not follow that the Father is the Son, a problem which only arises when the divine substance is thought of as a Fragian object. Abelard also explains the relationship between Father and Son by analogy to a waxen image. Father is to Son like the wax is to the image formed by the wax an analogy which implicitly looks at the divine substance as an object to which each person is somehow identical. <clears throat> Abelard influenced everyone after him, whether by inciting admiration or enmity or both. So I think in showing that Anselm has influenced Abelard on these topics, you've basically shown that therefore he's influencing everyone. And after Abelard you now find people saying frequently things like God is the Father, God is the Son, 
And I think Abelard might be the first person who's starting to wrestle with the Trinitarian fallacies. And that will pick up steam, um, especially in the 1300s. Um, so just as a summary of some of the things we see after Abelard, uh, his Abelard's successors placed the divine essence in the role of grammatical subject, thus treating it like an object. They identify individual divine persons with the divine essence. The sun is the divine substance. They use and vice versa, a e converso, formulas to relate person and essence. They become interested in Trinitarian fallacies, and they start to accuse each other of treating the divine essence like a fourth entity in God, as though God were a quaternity. Key historical turning point is the Council of Reims in 1148. It's extremely, I barely knew about it, and it's an extremely interesting point in the history of Trinitarian theology. During the Council, and a lot of ecclesiastical drama as well. During the council, in order to secure the condemnation of Gilbert of Poitiers, Bernard of Clairvaux attempted to use as markers of theological orthodoxy formulas like God is deity and vice versa, and the three persons are one God and vice versa. Bernard failed to get Gilbert condemned, and his Trinitarian formulas were not recorded by the conciliar acts or the papal register. Nevertheless, his interventions are an important historical indicator. They demonstrate that in a short span of time, a new Trinitarian grammar had become widely accepted. And for some, like Bernard, it was now theologically normative that you could check somebody's orthodoxy against whether or not they accepted them. But not everyone regarded these developments as positive. Leading the resistance was Gilbert of Poitiers, Bernard of Clairvaux's target, whose objections seemed to have emerged from two factors especially. His attention to grammar. He taught grammar for many years and was regarded as one of the most learned men in Europe, and then eventually was made Bishop of Poitiers. So there's attention to grammar, and his reading of Hilary of Poitiers, Boethius, and various Greek fathers. Gilbert's theology, which was and is famously difficult, is not easily summarized or evaluated. During Gilbert's trial, Pope Eugenius III is said to have exclaimed, how can we judge what we do not understand? <laughs> Nevertheless, Gilbert's opposition to the grammar is clear. Gilbert regarded these new ways of speaking about God as a departure from the teaching of, fathers, of the fathers and a shift towards Sabellianism. Accordingly, he would accept the truth of propositions like divinity is God only if the term God was taken to refer to the divine nature. He also balked at statements like God is the Father, God is the Son, and God is the Holy Spirit. He held that the divine persons are not predicable because predicating the divine persons would have involved predicating individuals of a universal form something which Aristotelian logic prohibited. Um, uh, the Poritans, Gilbert died shortly after the council, but his thought and his approach lived on in the Poritans, Gilbert's followers, and they continued Gilbert's opposition to this new way of speaking about God. And the, they especially looked for vindication in the Greek tradition, 
And after finding it, there was one of them, Hugh of Hanau. He was looking for years to say, you know, his, was his teacher, Gilbert of Poitiers, right? Can I find proof that he was right to object to these things? And he feels that he found them. I think he ended up like consulting people in Constantinople. There's a wonderful line where he expresses his gratitude as follows. I shall never cease to thank the goodness of God as well as I can, for he deigned to put an end to my long sign and uneasiness of mind, so that I must now hold with Cyril of Alexandria and John of Damascus that person and nature are not the same, and with Basil the Great and Gregory the Theologian that the personal properties, person, and essence are not the same. Now, the opposition of Poritans like Hugh was not without effect. Arguably, it led to a general recognition that some distinction between essence and person was necessary. But their organized opposition eventually fell away, and they ceased to have any corporate identity. And um, so I, what I, I don't, I'm just going to... Uh, Stop. Uh, sum, summarize what. It, so what happens next is the Fourth Lateran Council, in its canon in Canon Two, it weighs in on the related issues, and it adopts many of the ways Anselm has started speaking, but with corrections, which reflect, I think, the influence of the Puritans about being careful about what you say. But still, what Lateran Four does, even though it's it's avoiding the problems that, in, in a strict way, that Gilbert was concerned about. It still is kind of officially authorizing these new ways of speaking about the Trinity, which are just intrinsically problematic and raise questions. Um, so, I would, and that's I'll just summarize that. Um, um, in this paper, I have avoided making any positive proposals, concentrating instead on diagnosing what has gone wrong and its historical origins. But with that said, this, this paper's genealogy suggests two obvious remedies. None of, of, neither of them is enough to entangle all the confusion, but each is simple and straightforward and have immediate effect. First, finally heeding the warnings of Gilbert of Poitiers, we need to become wary of expressions like God is the Father and God is the Son. These expressions can be interpreted in an orthodox manner by taking the term God to designate one of the divine persons, but they are prone to mislead and they must be handled with care. Second, when echoing or glossing Latter and Ford's assertion that each of the three divine persons is the divine essence, we should immediately add in a different way in a way proper to that person. By doing so, we'll be making it clear that the relationship between person and essence is not one of strict identity, but rather, as Basil of Caesarea and John of Damascus would say, a relationship between the common and the particular, and that each individual person is, quote, a mode of subsisting of the common divine essence. Thank you. Thank you very much.